The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on Radio Kerry.ie, the Radio Kerry app or on the traditional wireless 96 to 98 FM. There's a change in the weather, isn't there? It's a lot cooler now. You can really see autumn has arrived. But I don't mind, you get a better night's sleep, I found the last few nights because it's kind of not as hot uh, at night and the air is as fresh this morning. You should go outside the door there just for a few seconds and take a good whiff of it because it's, it's really fresh this morning. It's good, clean, carry air. So that'll do you good for the weekend. Um, I was listening to Abigail, brilliant programme as always, and she was asking you what you thought of... Uh, the late late what did you think of it I it was uh, I actually forgot about it and then I kind of tuned in a bit late and I was only in for about two minutes and I said jeez I better get to bed because the Saturday supplement is more important to me than the late late of a Friday night because I'd have to get up early in the morning so I was up at the lark this morning so I missed it all really so I'll have to catch it I'll have to watch it back um, but I wonder what you thought of it I'm just looking online there looking at different reviews and things like that it's kind of a mixed bag but more positive um, than negative but I was just thinking for the poor man himself isn't it a lot of pressure he was all front page yesterday on all the newspapers and everyone giving their tuppence worth judging him about how he did this and how he did that jeez you know I don't know <laughs> things can be very critical sometimes um, uh, I, I wish him the best look with it eh? I know I, I, I tuned in when I seen uh, he was talking about the, the late day tie show <laughs> I know a lot of people were getting upset with that because it was talking about Christmas uh, time but uh, I read somewhere I heard somewhere that uh, Ryan Tuberty's first programme was 900,000 people I think tuned into his first programme so it was smart enough to mention the Thai show last night when you'd probably have your most audience because everyone even that won't tune in now over the next uh, few weeks you know the nosiness and everything and just to see how he's getting on people were going to tune in last night so they used the opportunity Um, but uh, we wish him the best of luck with it Patrick Um, Kilty Um, No, very busy programme, as always, on the Saturday Supplement. We'll be speaking to Una O'Hagan, former RTE um, news journalist and reader, of course, about her new book that she wrote with her late great husband, Colm Keane, called The Monsignor. And this is a different kind of a book than um, we've usually heard from um, Colm Colm and uh, Una um, but it's a true story about the Victorian Britain's celebrity preacher, the Irish-born Monsignor Thomas John Capel, hid a dark secret. His lustful encounters heavy drinking and wild spending ended in humiliation, disgrace and suspension by Rome. And when you're reading this book you actually think it's a, a made-up novel or something because it's stranger um, than fiction but uh, it's a great read and I'm really looking forward to talking to Una about uh, that. We'll hear about our upcoming Architecture Kerry events, um, which are taking place in the, this county very soon. And we have our Speaking of Poetry with Bernadette 
knee reader. Always look forward uh, to that. So like I said, lots happening on the programme. Before I forget it, our good friend John Drummy and uh, um, Radio Kerry colleague um, asked me to remind you about uh, this event that's taking place today for the Kerry Mental Health Association. It's a charity spinathon for Kerry Mental Health Association, Clogden and District branch from 10am to 6pm today, 16th of September. All proceeds will go towards helping people with mental health challenges, their families and cares. And there will be collectors at PKs, that's in Clorglan, and Library Place. So, if you see the buckets there, you know what that's in aid of. It's all in aid of the Kerry Mental Health Association, Clorglan and District branch and the great work they do and I know uh, Tie Day Friday is coming up uh, as well so that's another great event uh, that I'm sure we'll be hearing um, more about. Janice sent me a great video there <laughs> of uh, I don't know, is that his daughter but she has all the boxes ready to go anyway um, so uh, I wish them all the best of luck with that so from 10 o'clock this morning they'll be there um, doing that um, Now I mentioned that uh, we had um, Creative Kingdom, we, we briefly touched with Victoria McCarthy from Kerry County Council about Architecture Kerry, but we said we'd go into it in a bit more detail and find out a bit more about the different events that are going on. And there's an event called Kingdom of Skills, Traditional Building Skills in Action Exhibition and Conservation Talks that's taking place in the Muckras Schoolhouse, Muckras House Killarney from Friday 29th and Saturday 30th of September 10am to 5pm daily a weekend of traditional building skills demonstrations and conservation talks for everyone interested in period buildings architectural conservation and traditional building skills and we will be talking to one or two people that are doing um, demonstrations at this and we'll also be talking about architecture tours a little later on that are taking place in the county but first I'm delighted to say we have Emmeline Henderson uh, who is Conservation Manager and Assistant Director with the Irish Georgian Society on the line. Emmeline, you're very welcome this morning. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Thank you very much for having us on the show. I suppose, firstly, I suppose, how important are events like this to have and the events that Architecture Kerry put on and the, the, the ones we're talking about in particular this morning? Oh, they're hugely important. Um, we're delighted to be partnering with Kerry County Council and the Trustees of Muckras House to deliver one aspect of the Architecture Kerry Festival. As you said, we're, we're looking at traditional building skills. So the message we're trying to impart um, in the Irish Jordan Society and with our partners is the importance of using traditional methods and materials in renovating um, or retrofitting or restoring any um, old building. It need not be... Um, of huge architectural significance. It could be a vernacular building with very subtle um, traditional building skills used. But we are trying to explain to people the importance of using those traditional methods and materials because if you don't, what can happen is not only can you kind of um, erode that character of your historic building that you might think, uh, you know, that we, we, we know we like it, but we don't know why we like it. Um, um, because we might think, oh, well, you know, uh, this is uh, a lovely old building, but why, why do we think it's a lovely old building? So, you know, it's probably that, you know, this lovely timber sash windows, there might be a traditional uh, Lascanner slate roof or a, a thatched roof. There could be a beautiful lime render on the outside of the building, historic uh, joinery on the doors. Um, you know, so it's all these little subtle things. And when we go about um, doing often kind of well-intentioned um, home improvements, we can sometimes by accident, not meaning to, kind of take away that character of the historic building. So we're trying to drive a message forward here uh, with our partners about the importance of using traditional um, materials and methods. But not only that, it's, it's good for the occupants of the building, lime and things, it helps your, it helps your building breathe, it also stops you getting damp issues and condensation issues in your house. Um, 
and a, a, a wet house is not an easy one to keep warm and you know energy bills are also an issue so um uh, yeah. So, yeah, so and, and, and I suppose, Emmeline, like I'm involved in the brewing industry now, and you know, you'd be talking to distillers and different things like that. And an art form and a traditional skill that was that died out was cooperage, building the barrels and all that. And that's actually coming back because there's such a demand for that now. And like you were saying there, I suppose it's important to create that demand then as well to keep these skills alive and skills that have been handed down from generation to generation and, and real, I suppose, expert skills as well. Absolutely and I think that's a, a big focus as well Joe of this exhibition this year we're delighted to be partnering with um, the, the have, to have the Office of Public Works who have a depot in Muckrath um, and they do apprenticeship programmes and then as you know Kerry College of Further Education has fantastic programmes and I know you'll be talking to Donal mm. later about, about that so it is um, this is an opportunity for anyone who has um, young people in particular whether they be in school or early like school leavers or um, people maybe looking for a changing career to come and meet the kind of the national experts at um, traditional craft skills and um, so the people who are coming down to Muckris for Friday and Saturday um, the 29th and 30th they are like they're national experts and will also be tapping into the, nas- the county expertise so we have like you know, a fantastic stained glass um, conservator, Glyn Palmer coming, we've got Tom Allison coming as blacksmith, uh, Lucas the Thatcher, um, we've got lots of people from Kerry who really know how to do things the right way um, and they would be delighted to talk to the next generation, anyone who's interested in um, learning about traditional skills. We also have um, Old Spab Ireland, who are the site of protection of ancient buildings, the Building Lines Forum Ireland, um, the Dry Stoning Association will Association of Ireland coming um, and you know and also the Princess Foundation which is a bit of an unusual one but they have for the first time last year they offered a All-Ireland Heritage Skills training programme and they have um, they certainly next year will be looking for new people a new cohort of um, students and uh, Hugh Kavanagh who, who runs that programme in Ireland he'll be there for the whole weekend and he'll be delighted to meet with new people um, young people who might be interested in pursuing a career in traditional building skills, yes. Yeah. So it's uh, very much about passing on to the next generation as well. Yeah, completely, and it's, it, there's a lot of practical kind of um, talks and demonstrations going on. I was looking at here, like, you know, I suppose the importance of preventative maintenance and dealing with damp in your traditionally built house. Um, you know, my building is a protected structure, what does that mean? But then just more, I suppose, kind of detailed practical uh, examples as well about what you can do. So, And like, we know there's a lot of grants going at the moment and things like that so this is very practical as well for for anyone that is looking to do something uh, to their traditional build uh, build, or like you say uh, maybe a contemporary build with a a traditional um, kind of um, twist on it Absolutely, and we like. I don't know if you, if you if you go on to um, the Kerry Architecture Festival website www.architecturekerrycoco.ie, you can get the program of talks downloaded there, mm. and they're all free of charge, and you don't need to book for them. And um, they're on the hour every hour, all day Friday and Saturday. And as you say, we've got the experts coming. Like we have um, Carl Rafferty in the Department of Heritage, who is an expert in um, energy efficiency, who actually also helped co-curate an exhibition that we're going to be having in the old schoolhouse in Muckrath for the duration of the Friday and Saturday and um, so it's a, an exhibition about how to what works would and would not like 
change the character of your historic building, but would um, help to enhance the energy efficiency, like to keep your house warm, to keep your energy bills down, but without like changing the character of your building if you live in a traditional building. Um, so she's going to be giving a lecture on that 9am for the early birds um, on the Friday um, and a similar type lecture from the Heritage Council, who happened to be one of our, along with um, Kerry County Council and the Department of uh, Housing, Local Government Heritage, um, the Heritage Council are one of the, the big supporters of the Architecture Kerry Festival and the Kingdom of Skills exhibition. So Trina Byrne, the Architecture Officer, she's going to be looking, it sounds a little bit uh, esoteric now, navigating the intersection of sustainability and old buildings. I, I hope people aren't turned <laughs> off by that joke, but actually it's a really practical lecture looking at how you would do up your house and um, make changes to your house to make it more energy efficient um, but keeping that character because you know we all love our historic buildings um, and Kerry is you know replete with the most beautiful historic buildings and um, obviously you know with the, the, the wonderful foil of your natural landscape but um, this really amazing building stock down in Kerry and it, it, it's important to to recognise how you know really unique it is on a, on a national level and um, the, the buildings in Kerry particularly the buildings in the towns I, I know a lot of the images shown on the um, on the flyer are kind of more vernacular mm. you know we have like Scotch costs and things but we're really interested in um, you know the historic towns and villages in Kerry because it's so, such an amazing wealth of historic mm. buildings like in you know, Stoll and um, places like that so uh, yeah. we'll have even if you're in a, in a you might, so I think sometimes people don't even realise they live in an historic building do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so it's just trying to make people recognise uh, the value of what they have. That's um, so true, and, yeah. And I know yeah. many people do, but sometimes we take it for granted, don't we? Um, and yeah. all of us do. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and just uh, like there, there, we couldn't mention all the lectures. There's so many, but like you say, you can go onto the the Architecture Kerry website. Just Google Architecture Kerry, and you'll see it. Um, and the the standard of of lectures that are coming down as well is is, is quite astounding. The demonstrations uh, of the ironwork and joinery and stone carving and everything else, and we will be talking to two people about that. That's kind of going on through the weekend as well. It is so. It's it's a traditional building skills in action. The Kingdom yeah. Kerry Skills Exhibition. So, like literally from ten a.m. until five o'clock on the Friday and Saturday, we're going to have in the old schoolhouse in Muckworth, and we're going to have um, over twenty-two traditional building skills practitioners, like actively demonstrating like every skill you need for the care and conservation of an old building. And that is also like we have like a si- amazing Martin Shoot, like a sign writer coming to show how you would do like a traditional sign writing on fascia boards and you know historic. Um, shop fronts. We have, uh, you know, Hugh Dorian and Edward Byrne and uh, coming from, you know, the Lime, traditional Lime Company and from Stoneware Studios to show about, like, how, how, like explaining how you use Lime, where you can get it. Uh, we've got, um, as I said, Lucas and Thatcher coming, um, just, you know, like all sorts of people coming. So, it, and also it's not just about the building, but also about the landscape, you know, the kind of what we call the curtilage um, in protective structure terms. So you might have some lovely um, traditional walls on your on your farm or um, in your house and we'll be looking at how to look after those walls, not just the dry stone walls, but also ones that are um, built using lime mortar. Um, and we even have, like, there's some little kind of niche things. Now, not everybody has this and I don't have it in my own house, um, but there is an amazing person called David Skinner coming in. He's Ireland's wallpaper um, expert and he's going to be giving a, a demonstration um, on wallpaper, how you make historic wallpaper, but also a lecture uh, looking at, um, you know, wallpaper in historic houses in Kerry. 
So yeah. that'd yeah. be really interesting yeah. too. Emily, it sounds it sounds fantastic. Cartilage, that's a new word for me. Is that like uh, road is that like road frontage? <laughs> it just means your the, all the area that you kinda own within your property. So it could yeah. be your 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 outhouse or your shed or whatever, but it's all forms of cartilage and some people don't realise and that's why Jack Donnelly from the department's coming down. Just to explain, like if if your house protected structure, you know, what does that mean? So yeah. you have um, it's, it's not just the building, it's um, your outbuildings and your stone walls and all that. Very but good. again, this is not about the stick, this is the carrot, this is like making people aware of the grants available and making people understand and appreciate their, our, our beautiful Kerry heritage. Yeah. Um, and so if you could come along, we'd love it. And the other thing is free into Muckford's yeah. house, free into the traditional farms, yeah, free into the lectures, free into uh, the exhibition. So um, hopefully... A free for all. Get, hopefully we won't get them, um, uh, you know... A wet day, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> oh, but anyway uh, no, it sounds brilliant. Well done, Emily, and thanks a million for coming on, and oh, we wish you the best you. of luck with it, and uh, I can't wait to much. talk to the, the, the others that are involved in this. But Emily Henderson, uh, Conservation Manager and Assistant Director of Irish Georgian Society, thanks a million for coming on with us this morning. Thank you, Joe. Cheers. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and we'll have more from Architecture Curry after this. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Say hello to us, 066 You can text the WhatsApp, 083 um, We're talking about architecture, Kerry, and uh, in particular, Kingdom of Skills. We mentioned that before the break. Traditional Building Skills in Action exhibition and conservation talks. A weekend of traditional building skills demonstration conservation talks for everyone interested in period buildings, architectural conservation, and traditional building skills at Mockris House on Friday 29th and Saturday 30th of September. And... Uh, to tell us more about uh, the demonstrations, we have two particular very skilled people now to tell us the demonstrations that they'll be doing. We have Tom Allison, who's a blacksmith um, at Mokris, um House and Traditional Farms. And we also have Donald Corcoran from Kerry College, traditional stonewall construction instructor. You're both very welcome. How are you this morning? Very good, thank you. Good. Tom, I'll go to you first. I met you over in uh, in Mokris there uh, a few months back now. Maybe it's, it's yeah, further along. Yeah, in the winter, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. In the, the schoolhouse there, it was actually a lovely um, setting. And uh, tell us about what you'll actually be doing the weekend of it. Um, well, I will have my uh, a traditional blacksmithing forge set up. So we'll have uh, bellows uh, working the fire um, and I will be um, demonstrating how that kind of setup is used, was used, and how effective it was at being able to heat metal and make um, metal things. So I'll be actually doing a bit of a uh, gate repair and, and um, on a traditional old gate, a very old gate from uh, North Kerry, actually. Wow. And uh, this is it, I suppose. Like, sometimes when people think of blacksmiths, they think of horses and they think of long ago. But they did a lot more than just shoe horses. There was a lot of ironwork involved. Well, that's right, yeah. Often the village smith, he was an all-rounder. He would be a farrier blacksmith. He would shoe horses and he would be able to make and repair tools, band tyres of cartwheels and do all that kind of metal working for the village from the humble nail to fixing ploughs and that kind of stuff. Um, over time, I suppose, the trade became kind of separated. Um, 
I, and still, like, horseshoes are a tool, really, for keeping horses working on the road at the time. And they like changing tyres on your car back then. Because mm. um, they, if they don't have a horseshoe on, their hoof, which is basically a large fingernail, wears down and um, and it damages the, the, the base of the foot. So they have to be protected from, from the kind of stones and, the, and that kind of hard wearing of, on the roads and stuff. Mm. Um, but blacksmithing itself... Um, is more of a trade about tool making and um, so from all the tools through history really were made by blacksmiths uh, developed by craftspeople and the blacksmith over time and um, and there were and kind of hardware items for the home from fireside equipment to cutlery and even pans and things like that used to be made by blacksmiths before they were kind of cast um, and uh, yeah, so there's a whole range of stuff, and then you have the architectural kind of side of things, the um, gates, railings, balconies, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a, a Visually, I can imagine, if you were to go along, it's it's a fairly impressive um, kind of sight to see a, a blacksmith in action because you've all the sounds, you've the smells, and, and the visual heating of metal and all that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just to see the bellows working is a... Um, an experience in itself because they're such an incredibly effective piece of equipment um, with a very minimal amount of effort um, you have a fire that is twice as hot as a normal fire over 1500 degrees so we can take metal right up to its melting point um, that was a crucial kind of aspect or need for the blacksmith to be able to do because in the olden days there's only two ways of really joining metal together you could rivet things together that you'll see on gates but also to be able to fuse them together to actually weld the metal together uh, a forge weld or a fire weld and that was how a cartwheel band was joined from being a straight piece of metal bent into a circle and then fused welded back together um, and joined like that it's called Kingdom of Skills, this event. What, what kind of skills do you need to be a good blacksmith, do you think? Um, I think it's a lot of hand-eye coordination mm. and a lot of practice. Um, I think a lot of people could be blacksmiths. I think if we look back in history, there were so many blacksmiths. So it wasn't that it was probably that difficult a job. It just took time and practice. And I think in the old days, when there were so many forges and young lads could come and pass by the forge and, and stop in and help the blacksmith maybe make a few nails, work the bellows. It was easier for um, people to get into the trade. Now there's so few blacksmiths, so few ways of learning the trade. It's a much harder trade to get into. Yeah, and, and is there any demand at all to keep that trade going? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the, um, there is a real need for blacksmiths again. Um, there's a lot of people getting back into these old crafts. They can't go and buy their, a lot of the times can't go and buy their tools. They'll either have to try and source old tools from somewhere mm. or they come to a blacksmith and get them made. So I still make old tools for people, particularly wood turners and people like that who look for a specialist kind of shape of chisel or something to turn bowls and this kind of thing. Um, and then there's this whole rise in the appreciation of the heritage of Ireland and its um, architecture and ironwork, and that is a need to be restored. Um, 
and so yeah there's a uh, people just are, are looking for now blacksmiths to come and repair their railings and that kind of thing yeah that's amazing to hear because you know we've done a handmade in Kerry and we've talked about wood turners and and different craftspeople but it's great to hear that the tools then are actually handmade as well you know it's really authentic then yeah yeah absolutely yeah from like literally from the kind of base bit upwards and and it's amazing that those tools were really developed between the craftsperson and the blacksmith over you know two and a half three thousand years of human history um all those tools kind of like were designed by between the blacksmith and the craftsperson, craftsperson probably saying, I need something to do this, and then working, they working out what that shape was and developing that shape over the years. Mm. Uh, Doyle Cochran also joins us from Kerry College, traditional stone wall construction instructor. Doyle, there's nothing nicer, I think, than if you're travelling around this country and you see these beautiful stone walls laid out in front of you. Visually, they're just so impressive and and they tell their own story too they do they do Joe it, it, there is nothing nicer especially on a fine day mm-hmm. and uh, like that again as Emmeline was saying earlier we were so lucky here in Kerry to have so many examples you know back around Dingle and all over Kerry the amount of stone walls is just unbelievable sort of so it really is uh, great to have it and it's nice to nice to see and nice to see the main paint as well Mm. The history of them, Donald, I presume they were used, uh, for, was it for animals or was it setting up perimeters or boundaries or, or what, what were they initially for? Well, the thing about the, the, the stone walls is essentially it was uh, just clearing land, Joe. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the, the yeah. stone was picked off the land and then it would, would have been used for peri- perimeters, but also to keep uh, livestock in and delineate who owned what, like, you know what I mean? Like, so... Uh, but the main that's why you'll see the local stone in the local walls that the, the dry stone walls would have been the stone off the fields so rather than some buildings now the, the stone would have been quarried mm. so. yeah that's yeah and then like the art of trying to find the right stone for the right position and all that um, and again these are skills that have been handed down from generation to generation but I'd imagine there's a bit of an art to it too in the line of you need a bit of talent for it as well well, it is the stone will actually tell you how you can build it because a lot of dry stone work is, is kind of flaggy stone. Mm-hmm. It's flat stone. So it all depends on the stone, say, whether it's sandstone or slate. And you'll build accordingly then, you know what I mean? Like Because it's it's very hard. The stone, the good thing about the dry stone walls is that they're built uh, wide at the bottom and then they're battered, which means they're falling in as they're being built up. So they kind of they hold themselves up. And then you have, say things like true stones which hold the, the walls together and you also have kinds and bond stones so the, the the bond stones would be stones that would go more than halfway across the wall you know mm. that, that hold the yeah and, and, and in construction in general then you see it a lot don't you that kind of traditional stone walls you know maybe kind of on the face of a house or like and the, the wall perimeter around the house as well it's very much in vogue it is. That's that's uh, kind of stone cladding is what we call that now. Mm. And you see, just two parts to two parts to stonework. One is aesthetics, what you were saying about the look of it. Yeah. And the other then is structural. So the main thing about stone is the weight of it. And the thing with a house or with a wall, then as well, um, you don't have the space that you would have in a, a, a wall in the field. So you'd be. You, what we do is we you have to use mortar, whereas out in the field you have two foot wide 
walls against the house or a, uh, an entrance wall you have only maybe seven or eight inches mm. so you've got to use mortar and now you can do different styles you can do mortar joint or you can do dry stone effect which essentially means to keep the, the mortar back from the face of the wall mm. and that way it looks like a dry stone but mm. um, because it has become so popular you have to adapt then as well your skills to give the customer what they want like so it has adapted it and um, in relation to that then as well as we run in Kerry College we run a traditional stonewall construction course and in that course then as well as we cover numerous ways of building walls everything from dry stone walls then to cladding houses everything from a fireplace to a hotel so we, we cover all that area and all the rules involved as well mm. and people that want to do that course like uh, can you go straight into it or do you have to be in a trade already or what way does that work no you can go straight into it like we're actually starting a new course now the 9th of October so we are mm. and we're looking for applicants for that so it's just uh, the, the, the skills as you were saying earlier though, what skills would you need and the main skill is patience mm. you know you need to be able to uh, patient with the stone because you can be working on a stone for ages and then it just shatters <laughs> you've yeah. got to just do you know what I mean like you've yeah. got to just pick yourself up and, and like so but uh, the skill uh, hand-eye coordination like working outdoors but um, the opportunities are immense like yeah that's job. what I was thinking Donald that like you know the, the, the trades people are so scarce but this in particular you know if you're strong at something kind of I suppose more niche that's where you really have a, 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 a tremendous opportunities yes there's a Mason, so there is. And this, the traditional stone wall then course that can lead on in Kerry College. We've also got a stone cutting and stone masonry apprenticeship, which is the only one in Ireland. So that that's run from Kerry College in Mona Valley, mm. and that's a four year course. And opportunities there are, are, are great because uh, there's a constant demand and there's there's uh, a constant supply of um, employers who are looking for uh, stone masons or apprentice stone masons. Yeah. And they're just so scarce, like, uh, as well as that, Joe, the, the, the job itself, like being able to work outdoors in the fine weather, like, all right, you'll have bad weather as well. But to, at the end of each day, you can turn around and see a lovely piece of work left behind you. Yeah, beautiful, uh, a, be- a beautiful uh, office. And, Donald, you'll be doing demonstrations as well uh, Friday and Saturday, or there'll be demonstrations going on of traditional stone wall construction. So, um, very much looking forward to that. Donald, thanks a million for coming on. Thank and you, tell us all about it and kerrycollege.ie if you want to know more about uh, that course Tom are you still there you are I, I am indeed yeah, I just, yeah. I, I just wanted you. to ask you Tom I suppose you know the, the being able to meet people and being able to show off what you're actually doing it must be very satisfying because I'd imagine a lot of it you know you're working alone kind of and then to kind of tell people about this and they must get a great kick out of it watching you doing the, 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 the skills that you do Oh, they do, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose nowadays a lot of times blacksmiths are tucked away in little in workshops and mm. barns and stuff, and they're not the kind of central, pivotal kind of uh, role within the village that they used to be. So there's a big magic to be seen in blacksmithing, the heating of the metal, the, the hot metal being shaped and formed, and how pliable and workable it is for this kind of incredibly short period of time, but it's suddenly like a, a clay that can be manipulated and moulded and shaped and stuff yeah Um, yeah very good well Tom best of luck with it and enjoy it um, and uh, it promises to be a great event and thanks a million for coming on and giving us that that fantastic insight into, into your craft
Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having us. That's Tom Allison, blacksmith, and Donald Cochran from Kerry College, Jason Stoll, Mall Construction Instructor. And Kingdom of Skills is taking place from Friday 29th to Saturday and Saturday 30th of September, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily at Mockris uh, Schoolhouse, Mockris House, Killarney. We're going to take a break, and after that, we're going to be talking to Suzanne Keane of Shoker Design on the tour she's doing for Architecture Kerry. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yeah, we're talking about the events that are taking place for Architecture, Kerry. And I'm delighted to say now we've Suzanne Keane of Shoku Design. And uh, Suzanne, you're going to be doing tours. You're very welcome. Tell us about these. Thanks, Joe. We're going to be doing three tours over the weekend. Um, the first one is on Saturday at 2pm. It is a renovation extension project in Benerville. So this was your typical 1980s bungalow. And we have stripped it apart and created a bright and spacious modern home. Wow. And then you've two other tours as well. Tell us about those. Yeah, so the second one is actually on Sunday morning at 11. It is in Recovery Haven, the uh, cancer support service. And before uh, before this project, they were working out of porta cabins. They had their treatment rooms and meeting rooms in a porta cabin at the back of the building. So we've extended the building and we've made it all fully accessible for wheelchairs and anyone with a disability. There's new toilets, there's new treatment rooms, and there's a big, large meeting space with a kitchen. Whoa. And there's also a garden that has been donated by the Mary Keating Foundation from Bloom. Yeah. So that will be available to service users as well. So yeah. we're hoping that we'll all be ready to show off in two weeks' time. Whoa. Yeah, and give us the dates, actually, before we uh, go on any further. They're the, are they the so same? The yeah. Centerville tour is this Saturday, the 30th of September, mm-hmm. and Recovery Haven and our tour in Brandon are Sunday, the 1st of October. Very good. I'm going to come back to Recovery Haven, but just the tour in Brandon, what, what is going on there? So Brandon was an old derelict farmhouse um, that has been renovated um, in, I suppose, a very sensitive manner because it was one of those typical two-story farmhouses that are scattered all over the countryside. Yeah. So we've kept the character of that and we've added on a small little extension. So when you come into the house, you still have the traditional kitchen, you still have the small stairs with the winders, there's wainscoting on the walls, but then there's a lovely little extension just off the kitchen which has an angled window to take in the view of Brandon. Yeah, I'd imagine that's going to be a very important tour because, like you say, there's a lot of them kind of houses around the county and I suppose people looking for inspiration of how things are done, it would be a good one to go along to. Yeah, it's definitely a more sustainable approach to look at an existing building and to try and fix that and do everything you can with that rather than to build something new. And those two-storey farmhouses are scattered all over the countryside. Mm. Um, the uh, Recovery Haven, I mentioned that, and we had um, uh, people in here from Recovery Haven uh, learning radio for the week, and we've had them on the programme numerous times, and they were always on about this, you know, the transformation that was taking place in the, the garden and everything else. That's fantastic, to, I'd say, project to be involved in. It is. It's wonderful to be able to be involved in something like this and see it change um, over the last year and see the difference that it's going to make. Yeah. Um, the architecture carry itself, how important do you think um, a, a week a week of this, um, you know, highlighting our architecture here in Kerry, how important do you think it is to, to, to run something like this and why? Well, it's fantastic. And Victoria McCarthy puts so much work into it and it has grown every year. It's wonderful to see. Even during COVID, we were doing virtual tours just to keep it going. It's just brilliant the amount of work that goes into it. We have some fantastic buildings in Kerry. And I think a lot of the time people look at 
TV programs in other countries and they think about their fantastic buildings or they think about city buildings. But in Kerry, we have a wonderful portfolio of buildings um, from vernacular to contemporary. It's just fantastic and Victoria is highlighting these. It's brilliant. Mm. And I suppose technology is there to kind of do the virtual tour, wasn't it? I suppose, you know, you, you often, yeah. like, I, I, I watch a lot of these. There was what I was watching on Netflix where they, they have virtual reality headsets on their heads and they're walking around. Um, so the technology is kind of there to kind of show you a 3D model of something. It is, but nothing is the same as actually walking in the yeah. door and experiencing a space. Yeah. The virtual tours were great and they were what we had to do at the time, but I'm glad to be back to actual tours this year. Yeah, and that, that kind of tangible element of walking in and showing the, the detail, I suppose, as well is, is so important. Yes, and I, we give a talk in a virtual tour, but someone can't ask a question, whereas yeah. now they'll be able to meet the architect on site and ask a question. Okay, and the tours, do you have to book in advance or how, how does that work? Yes, they're all pre-booked. All the tours are free, but you have to pre-book. Okay, and where do you... And limited spaces. Uh, limited spaces. Uh, where do you book? Um, you can either call 066-711-7664 or you can email info at shukrudesign.com. Very good. Info at shukrudesign.com. And give the number one more time just so people have a chance yep. to take it on. 66 very good. Well, best of luck with it and thanks a million for coming on and uh, telling us all about those three wonderful tours. A lot of variety there as well, which is brilliant. And like you say, you can't be beat being there. So Suzanne Keane from Shoker Design, thanks a million for coming on and telling us all about that. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a wonderful event, um, Architecture Kerry. And uh, if you Google Architecture Kerry, you see all the different events that are taking place. It's um, it's scheduled from Friday, this Friday coming 22nd of September to Sunday, the 1st of October. And uh, if you Google that, you'll go on to the, the website, Archite- Architecture Kerry. Um, coco.ie it's one of these words that I have a fierce difficulty saying I notice architecture Kerry I have to keep saying it to get it get it uh, right architecture is the word I have the problem with obviously not um, Kerry but they have a great program lined up there and you can go in and you can click on it and uh, see everything that's going on and um, it's an initiative it's a recent enough initiative but it's going from strength to strength every year and it's been built on and uh, Victoria McCarthy there and everyone else should be um, commended for the work uh, they do on it if you want to get in touch with us 066 you can text the WhatsApp 083 300 we're going to take a break and I'll get to your text after these The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media Ireland's best broadband visit virginmedia.ie it's playtime you're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yes, indeed, and I hope you're enjoying the programme so far. 066 712 You can text the WhatsApp 083 300 Hi, Joe. Just to let you know, um, this was from last week, actually, uh, just to let you know that Clarkland Drama Group also performed Hunger Strike in the Schoolhouse of Muckers Traditional Farm on Sunday, the 24th of September, and later on in Shim because we mentioned the Shim Satira. Um, one last week and I came in from Mike Fuller famous actor there Mike um, the sisters in the Bon Secours were absolutely wonderful and gave great care I worked there for years and it was a fabulous place to work wishing them all the best for the future I hope the caring ethos of the Bonds continues and um, 
uh, we got a, a few more texts in as well um, in relation to uh, the Bon Secure Sisters that we were talking about last week and wishing them all the best. Now, I want to mention a new website that's being launched, discoverivera.ie, and uh, I was in an event a few months ago, actually, and it was kind of a collaboration between um, the live project, which ran on Ivera Peninsula uh, for three years, and um, another group in Wales, and it was on about s- uh, sustainable tourism. So the live project aims to support the coast communities of Ivera to engage more deeply with their rich natural heritage as a basis for sustainable tourism, particularly focusing on the off-season. And the key output of the project was a new website offering information guides, downloads, videos and other resources to showcase the rich and varied natural heritage of the region. A region and the website is Discover Ivera, um, Dot IE, and they are having um, information evenings um, on next week and they're taking place both in Carsevine and in Waterville and that's Wednesday the 20th um, next week and if you want more information on those um, they want people to go along and to engage um, and to talk about the website um, you can ring Lucy on 87 942 so that's 87 um, if you want more information or you can email lucy.taylor at ucc.ie lucy.taylor at ucc.ie and that's a new website we wish them all the best of luck with it now we're going to take a break for the news and in the next hour we're going to be talking to a former RTE newsreader and journalist and writer uh, Una O'Hagan about her new book she wrote with her um, late husband um, called The Monsignor and it's some book I can't wait to tell you all about it in the next hour The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry Yeah it's unsettled now isn't it alright the weather uh, the sunshine is gone I still won't put away the barbecue though I don't care I'll be doing it in the rain I'm going to knock my value out of this barbecue that I got during the, um, the summer um, later on we'll be talking about or speaking of poetry which we have here every month with renowned poet Bernadette Nureda and she will bring along a poet of her choosing I'm very much looking forward to her choice um, this month if you want to get in touch with the programme 66 712 you can also text the WhatsApp 083300 I'm on Twitter social media or whatever it's called now. what's it called now X and all those things Joe McGill 121 now I mentioned this at the start of the programme this wonderful new book called The Monsignor Victorian Britain's celebrity preacher, the Irish-born Monsignor Thomas John Cable, hid a dark secret behind his handsome looks, rich uh, aristocratic friends and close ties to two popes. He was a sexual predator and exploiter of vulnerable women. His lustful encounters, heavy drinking and wild spending ended in humiliation, disgrace and suspension by Rome. In his travels through Europe and the United States, this superstar of the Catholic Church left behind a trail of broken hearts and admirers shorn of their savings. His behaviour threatened to bring the church in Britain to its knees. For the first time in a century and a half, this groundbreaking book recalls the sensational decline and fall of a man who was once admired and acclaimed worldwide. The late Colum Keane published 30 books, including nine number one bestsellers, among them Journey's End, the Little Flowers, St. Tres of Lesseau and Padre Pio. Irish Encounters with the Saint Uno Hagen is a former newsreader with uh, Radio Telefiche Aaron, co-author of the number one bestseller, The Little Flower, St. Tres of Lesseau. And this is her fifth book and she joins me now. Good morning, Una. How are you? 
Good morning, Joe. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, not too bad at all. All the better for hearing your wonderful voice. We miss that <laughs> voice now on the, the National <laughs> Airways. It's great to hear it on the radio this morning. Um, I suppose, firstly, Una, how did you come across Capel? And it's Capel as in Capel Street. That's how this is pronounced. We established, I established what you're doing yeah. the weekend. Yeah, no, we came across him when we were doing our research for our book on Lourdes, um, the village of Bernadette. And he actually met Saint Bernadette. Um, but when we were doing our research, we kept coming across these references to his um, mysterious decline uh, into disgrace. And, uh, you know, he went bankrupt and uh, veiled references as well to, to women, had the women of Kensington, where he was based at the time, would miss him. So Colm and I kind of looked at each other and said, you know what, there's a story here. And actually there was a story and a half yeah and wonderful story and like I was saying to you during the week this is stranger than fiction you wouldn't think it was like a true story it's like a a novel yeah absolutely you could not make it up his life was so extraordinary and his misbehaviour was on such an epic scale when you think of when it happened you know you think Victorian times very repressed you know, they even covered up table legs because if they were wonder, you know, they were wary of any kind of sexual yeah. connotation with the table leg. But he was doing this at a, at a rapid rate. I mean, there were three things that were his downfall. One, women. Two, money. And three, drink. Yeah. So he kind of had it all going on. So let's talk about where, where did it all uh, begin for him and, and, and how did he rise to, to fame? Who was he? He he was born uh, not far from where I am at the moment, actually, the sort of the next headland round in a lovely place called, a pretty seaside village called Ardmore. His father was English, John Capel. He was based in the Coast Guard there. His mother was Mary Fitzgerald from nearby Whiting Bay. And uh, they had to move to England. They followed John Capel's uh, career around the south coast of England. And it became very clear from very early on that uh, Thomas John Capel was an extraordinary and intelligent young boy. And through his own intelligence and hard work and the work of his mother, he uh, got a good education became a priest and became then a celebrity for two things. One, he was a fantastic sermonizer, and two, he had an ability to uh, convert people to the Catholic faith. And not just anybody, but members of the British upper class. And he managed to convert um, one of the, the richest man in the world, and of course his name was made from then on. Yeah, so he was a good salesman, it strikes me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had a number of things going for him, particularly in relation to to women and the effect he had on women. He was very handsome, he was charismatic, he was intelligent, and he was a great communicator. But behind all that, he was ruthless, he was manipulative, he was cruel at times. And to be honest, I don't think he actually had had a conscience. And these... These were all of these things together uh, and made him a very dangerous but very attractive man. Yeah. And when did the cracks first start to show for him? When did the veneer start to slip? The first recorded complaint that we came across 
was uh, related to two American sisters whom he met in Rome. He actually baptised them into the Catholic Church and they complained about his behaviour uh, towards them, towards one of the sisters and towards their servant. He, uh, They um, said he had acted immodestly towards them. You have to make allowances for, sort of for the Victorian language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they complained to his boss, Cardinal Manning. And Manning, not, not once but twice, because Cardinal Manning did nothing the first time and he did nothing the second time. It was really, it was only about eight or nine years later where Capel really, um, you know, where, where Manning kind of realised that what Capel was up to uh, was in danger of kind of, of bringing the church to its knees in, in England. Um, and so um, Manning eventually acted, but there was a lot going on uh, between those those two uh, beginning and end points. Mm. Who was Mary Storton? Is that how you pronounce that, Storton, is it? No, perfectly. Yeah. Well done, yeah. actually. Yes. She was key to Capel's downfall. Her mother, she came from a very wealthy family. Uh, her mother was actually Irish. She was from Tipperary, I think, from a, a scully from Bloomfield House. And unfortunately, Mary and her did not get on. The mother was extremely religious and Mary was not. Mary Mary was a kind of a bit of a lost soul. But she ended up, she had um, an ill-advised and much regretted affair with a married man. She ended it very quickly, went to Kensington in London where she lived in isolation, but she was introduced to Capel by her aunt. Now, don't forget, Mary was 20. Three, I think at this stage Capel was about 38 or 39 and according to Mary this was where all her misery began Capel called to her constantly he pursued her he would stay uh, an hour an hour and a half and this was where these what she called acts of criminal intercourse took place mm. and despite Mary's vulnerability and she was vulnerable, and it was interesting that Capel, I think, picked her because she was so so isolated and alone. Nevertheless, she complained to Cardinal Manning and continued to complain to Cardinal Manning for years until eventually he set up uh, a top-secret investigation into Capel's behaviour. Mm. And, uh, like, he was a predator, really, when you you, do, you describe him there now and when, you, when you're hearing it. Um, so, like... How did he get away with it for so long? Was it, I suppose, the power of the Catholic Church? They didn't want any disgrace. They didn't want any shame. Like, how did he get away with uh, this for so long? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of factors, actually. One was Capel himself, because he was extremely popular. Um, You know, I mean, he used all his good points to his advantage. And people couldn't believe uh, uh, that he would be capable of this. Um, so any rumours that were going around were, were kind of discounted pretty quickly. There was also the power of the clerical collar, mm. you know, um, and he was a very powerful, aggressive, physically intimidating kind of man, but really the main thing was Cardinal Manning. His main, he felt his, his main job was to protect the Catholic Church uh, in Great Britain. And um, you know, there was a pretty hostile, uh, you know, attitude to the Catholic Church in Britain, you know, from particularly the, the kind of upper classes who were kind of 
pretty powerful. So he wanted to protect the church, but he eventually realised um, that, the, you know, Capel's behaviour was on such a level, at such an extreme, uh, that there was a danger that it was going to appear in the newspapers, get into the public realm. And so he instigated this uh, top-secret uh, investigation into into Capel and he was found guilty. Hilariously, he wasn't found guilty of um, being drunk, which is crazy because the mm. man was drinking from morning to night, but he was found guilty on three charges of inappropriate conduct towards women. And that was significant in itself that he was found guilty, wasn't it? You know, of that time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean... You know, they had tried to avoid this um, very much. They had done everything in their power. And when you think kind of nowadays, you kind of think, oh, this kind of thing only happened in the last 30 or 40 years. Mm. You know, that's not true. The church has had a history of, you know, 150 years of dealing with it. But what was crucial, what was significant about this was, A, he was found guilty, and B, he didn't accept it. Typical capel, he went off to Rome and he fought his case. You know, he he bamboozled cardinals. He would, you know, he ran a mag- magnificent campaign. And the, the, the church in England, they weren't really at the races when it came to kind of manipulating and working through the bureaucracy of, <clears throat> of the Vatican and of Rome. Mm. Eventually, believe it or not, they found him not guilty but not innocent either, which is a bit of a head-wrecking kind of a thing. Sitting on the fence, yeah. yeah, Exactly. The one thing they wanted him to do was to go to America. Even the Pope said, why doesn't he go and hide in America? And uh, Capel did go to America eventually, but of course he didn't hide there. Yeah, and we will talk about that, but we have to go to a break. We're talking about this wonderful new book, The Monsignor, um, written by Uno Hagen and Colm Keane. We're going to take a break with a more after these. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yeah, get in touch with us, 066-712-3366. You can text the WhatsApp, 083-300-3300. Hello to Patrick, who is enjoying the show this morning. We're talking about this wonderful new book that was just launched yesterday, The Monsignor, The Man, His Mistresses and The Missing Money by Colm Keane and Uno Hagen. Uno Hagen is still on the uh, line. Um, what strikes me about The Monsignor, um, Uno, a very arrogant man. Like we said about his looks and his charm, you can see from even the, the, the image of him in front of on the front cover, He's a very handsome-looking man. But he was really arrogant, and I suppose that's how he was able to kind of have the belief to launch his defence as well, that uh, how dare they kind of a thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was the standard... You know when a powerful man is caught in these kind of situations, they have the usual defence, and his, which the first thing they do is outrage. Who? Me? How yeah. dare you accuse me? I am such a senior. You know, how, how could you take the word of this woman against such a, a man as myself? Um, and then the second aspect to his defence was to attack the women. You know, they were mad, uh, they were drunks, they uh, took drugs, they were immoral, they were divorced, you know, and he just, it was literally attack, attack, attack. It was the same when he went to Rome, and he really seemed to have no self-awareness that he was doing anything wrong, and seemed to use the kind of clerical collar as some kind of shield, that no matter what he did, it couldn't be wrong because he was a priest. 
It was a weird, weird way of thinking. But yeah, arrogance, Mm. um, you know, describes him perfectly. Yeah. Um, And he was up to all sorts of things, wasn't he? Oh, he was. I mean, if you just think of America, um, you know, he lands in New York and there's a posse of newspaper men you know, waiting to greet him and there's all these wonderful articles about him. But, you know, the welcome really wasn't so warm when he got to um, the Cardinal, Cardinal McCluskey and um, Archbishop uh, Corrigan of New York. He had to, to meet them and they could see him coming. They knew there was something dodgy about this. They knew the Vatican had landed in them with a problem. And it was very soon that um, word began to get back to them of what Capel was up to. And it was one of my favourite stories it was to do with the, um, the New York Police and Superintendent's Gala Dinner, which was held in the very ritzy restaurant Delmonico's. And there were over 200 guests 600 bottles of wine were consumed, of which Capel yeah, I know, of which Capel seems to have had quite a lot because an eyewitness wrote to to the Cardinal and the Archbishop saying that he had never seen a man so drunk as Capel but he was quite paralysed by the drink Mm -hmm. and uh, Capel's Capel's excuse, which I think is wonderful, he wrote to the two lads saying, you know, I'm terribly sorry for what happened, but it was caused by the smoke. (laughs) It was the the smoke always had this effect on me. It made me dizzy. I, you know, I forgot the speech I was supposed to make and it won't happen again. (laughs) (laughs) That's a new one. It was the smoke. (laughs) I know. I know. It doesn't exactly ring true. And and his his life in America, uh, in the US, was, was just as as colourful, for want of a better word, than it than it was uh, in Europe, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he travelled from east to west. He had to um, he had to support himself financially because he'd no other way of doing it because he had been sort of semi suspended by Westminster, not fully suspended from the priesthood. So he he had these lecture tours, which were arranged by his agent, and he would stay in the richest, fanciest hotels or with the you know whoever the local millionaire was. Uh, I mean, there's so many stories of of his of what he got up to. He was in, I think it was Cincinnati, and he made a great impression on a woman called Alice Bowler, who was a or bowler, who was a very wealthy woman, and she gave him a thou- a check for a thousand dollars, which was a huge yeah. amount of money, for the Pope's charity, Peter's Pence. Now, in those days, and up to quite recently, checks would be returned when they were cashed to the original person. Mm. And so she got the cheque back and then looked at it and realised that it had been cashed at Tiffany's in New York. And so she got in contact with Tiffany's to find out what the Monsignor had had spent the money on. And apparently it was a diamond bracelet. I mean, that's just one of the things he got up to. Wow. And was caught. Yeah, and there's so many more stories, um, Mm -hmm. fascinating stories in in the book. Where did he end his days, um, Una? He ended his days, believe it or not, on a ranch in California with a divorcee, wealthy, again, divorcee, called uh, Mrs. Alice Valenson. And he spent really the last 25 years of his life there, and he was described as living the life of a disappointed man. It's kind of quite sad. Um, You know, he was still drinking a lot. He was still 
ordering the staff around in the in the, the ranch house. He was teaching the, the Chinese cook beautiful meals, Italian meals that he loved. And uh, I think he was seen maybe once or twice kind of walking around the, 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 the 4,000 acres dressed as a cowboy. But um, I know it was kind of sad. He was never brought back into the Catholic Church. He was fully suspended by the Pope uh, a number of years before. But there was um, a Bishop of Sacramento uh, called Bishop Grace. I think he was I think he was from Wexford and he kind of rehabilitated uh, Capel just a, a tad and allowed him to make speeches and sermons and stuff in the, the cathedral and when he died Bishop Grace he officiated at the funeral he put out the call for all the priests and the diocese to come and a lot of them did and uh, in fact one of the weirdest things is he was buried in a purple coffin Purple, so that yeah. was purple coffin because yeah. he was uh, had the rank of a monsignor, and of course, when the news went back to England, it was stated that he was uh, that he had died and that he was the senior prelate in charge of the Catholic Church in Northern California, mm. which is absolutely not true. But nonsense. that's what Capel, but yeah, nonsense. Capel yeah. had managed to manipulate that even from beyond the grave. Yeah. Well, at least you've set the record straight, which I think is so important. And you, yeah, 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 yourself and Combs should be commended because to, to research this, I can only imagine um, what you had to do to get all those brilliant, excellent stories. And to borrow a cliche, it is a page turner from the very beginning. Good. And even the, the prologue, uh, you know, before the first chapter, it really kind of captures what he's like. You know, you kind of get, oh, you, yeah. you get sucked in straight away. And the yeah. bo- you, you launched it um, yesterday, uh, Friday, the 15th of September and the, that date is significant uh, uh, Una. It is. It would have been Colm's birthday. As mm. you know, Colm died last January, 12 months and we kind of we always kind of launched them around this time, maybe a bit earlier, maybe a bit later, but I, you know, I think I thought it was a perfect day, because Colm always enjoyed it. This is the best time when you're doing a book, is your chance, you've done all the research, you've done all the hard work, and you get out and talk to people about it, so I thought it was just a little way of, of remembering Colm. Oh yeah, it's beautiful and uh, we always enjoyed having Colm in here, yourself and Colm, mm-hmm. I really look yeah. forward to it, and I keep saying it like, what a pro, and you've the programme done for me, because we you've it all produced and everything and it's just wonderful to, to and to hear the stories and how great you are at telling stories and Colm was just oh he was a brilliant man for that and the few times I met him you'd like to spend more time in his company he was just uh, wonderful so he must be very proud that you've launched it on his uh, birthday and uh, that it is out there for everyone to see in all good bookshops and Sheila Quirk gets in touch good morning Joe this book sounds incredible where can I purchase it please and Una like I said in all good bookshops all good bookshops online everywhere but if you can buy it in a bookshop because they, they've had a fairly tough time the last few years so yeah and, and yes, the, 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 the publishers um, Una the publishers are Capel Island Press yeah that, that's just a coincidence is it I know it's a connection it? with the name but it's a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Una thanks a million for coming on it's always a pleasure hearing oh, you, you and best of luck with the book and we look forward to the next project 
Lovely. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you as ever. Yeah, it's great to hear Una's voice there again on the, the radio. Um, what a fantastic broadcaster she was and now a great author as well. And uh, yeah, beautiful story there as well that it was launched on Colm's um, birthday as well. And it is Demon Senior. So you can get a copy of that in all good bookshops. Like I mentioned, The Man, His Mistresses and The Missing Money by Colm Keane and Una O'Hagan. We're going to take a break and after that we have Bernadette Nereda with Speaking of Poetry. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now it is the third Saturday of the month, so that means it's time for a speaking of poetry with Bernadette Neareda. Bernadette, how are you this morning? How are you getting at? I'm very well, Joe, and I hope you are too. I always add, thanks be to God, I'm great. <laughs> That's good. Um, sure, uh, why would we complain? Do you know that? We're heading into autumnal uh, season now, which is our actual team for uh, In Focus, uh, our photography slot. So uh, a different kind of a time of the year isn't it Bernard it is, you know, it's kind of time to take stock it's, it's, you can see the change and I think it's a lovely time of the year personally um, I mean we couldn't not that we had a summer per se which is a very negative thing but you couldn't have one season all the time I don't think we'd cope with that anyway but I think the autumn has its own I think every season has its own attractions once you make the, the transition into them that's what I think you know so yeah it, it it still transforms me into a child because any time I see one of those uh, kind of discoloured, crinkly leaves, I always like to stand at it just to get that crunch <laughs> like I <was> as a child. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's no better satisfaction. Yes, like, the sound, I suppose. Like popping bubble wrap yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah the, sound, the sound, the <laughs> sound. Uh, so, Bernadette, you always bring us a port. Uh, have you, I, I think you've thrown a bit of a, a slant on this one this month. Tell us what, who have you chosen? Okay, what I've done is, um, I actually, you're getting, you're getting three poets. We'll get three poets into this slot, and I'm including three for myself. The price of one. <laughs> yeah, I'm including <laughs> myself in that. So the first poet is um, called Philip Larkin, and then there's another poet called Charles Buozzi. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, and I've written a poem then, kind of in response to what he's written. But I think I'll deal with Philip Larkin first anyway. So. Maybe I'll, I'll Very good. So tell us about Philip Larkin. Philip, a UK poet, and he was born in England in 1922. Now, there's a lot of things you could say about him, but look, we're only skimming around. He had one sibling, a sister, who was 10 years older than him. And his childhood was a bit, I don't know, unusual, different. I don't know what you'd call it. He was educated at home until he was eight years old, and he was educated by his mother and sister. And it was a different home to what we would think like. There was no friends or relatives ever visited, which sounds strange. But anyway, that's what I've learned. And I think his parents were a bit aloof, not only from him, but I think from everyone, which kind of is evidence in the fact if there weren't people coming to the house at any stage, relatives or friends. But in later years, Larkin wrote a poem called This Be The Verse. And I'm going to say, and I won't read that one out because it is peppered with expletives. So maybe we'll skip. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> we'll skip the cuss words and won't be putting people off their morning cuppa. But he described, Larkin himself described his youth as boring and unspent. But at the same time now, and in the interest of fairness to his parents, 
like when they discovered that he was passionate about music they bought him a set of drums and a saxophone and I think they were emotionally detached from him if you know what I'm trying to say so I think that's that's was you know that they were saying well there you are you wanted those you're into music there you go so there was other things then because he was known to be a bit antisocial and always shied away from any publicity or fame but he had a speech impediment and he also had poor eyesight and I think that was another thing as well as maybe what he learnt at home you know not a house where people called to I think all those things kind of if you like grew that kind of antisocial slant in him and he was also known to have a dark kind of a dark humour and a bit he was a bit gloomy and this is reflected in his poetry but you know I would also argue that he was a keen observer of the reality of life and the world and the way we live our lives because any of his poetry that I've read it, you can say oh that didn't happen or that isn't right because it's it's realistic but with that in mind I might read a poem of his called Afternoons Right Summer is fading God Joe it's <laughs> just what you were talking about sorry I'll start again Summer is fading the leaves fall in ones and twos from trees bordering the new recreation ground. In the hollows of afternoons, young mothers assemble a swing and sandpit, setting free their children. Behind them, at intervals, stand husbands in skilled trades, an estate full of washing, and the albums lettered Our Wedding, lying near the television. Before them, the wind is ruining their courting places, that are still courting places, but the lovers are all in school, and their children, so intent on finding more unripe acorns, expect to be taken home. Their beauty has thickened. Something is pushing them to the side of their own lives. I think, and uh, this is, would be my thoughts on that, that he's, he's kind of given us here, it's... It might seem gloomy in a sense, but it's reality as well. Do you know what I'm, tra- you know what I'm trying to get across? That, like, yeah. it's a domestic scene, and if you, you could say it's very mundane, and it's kind of, you'd see children being brought to playgrounds and that, and the mothers, but he's also saying that the parents are moving away from a life, you know, when he refers to the, the our wedding is cast aside in a way because there's a heap of laundry and there's kids to be brought home. and But it... You, you can't, you know, at least this is just my opinion, you couldn't say, oh, that, that doesn't happen, because it does. It's a very kind of um, realistic domestic scene, in my view. Yeah, do you know what it reminds me of? The, the after, the happy ever after. You know, you see at the end of films like the rom-coms, and yeah, like it finishes yeah. with the, the, the marriage and the wedding yeah. day, but yeah. it doesn't go to the after then of reality. E- when exactly, when all the, the glow of all that fades away, <laughs> he's kind of picking up, what you know, this is when the shine is sort of fading. Yeah. And even the parents themselves are being moved into another life because the life they knew before all this happened is gone, you know. So, And yeah. he's not saying there's anything wrong with it, it's just reality you know so that's, yeah. that's it goes from scene to scene fairly quickly yeah, doesn't it yeah it does yeah. and yet he captures the whole kind of scenario but he was a, he was a clever clever enough man. he got a BA from St John's College in Oxford and he formed friendships there and one was with the novelist and poet Kingsley Amos and that friendship lasted throughout his life and I think Amos encouraged him to keep this kind of irreverent slant on things that he saw and write about them but after graduating, uh, he undertook, you know, professional studies because he wanted to be a librarian. And this was, I think, a further three year studies. So due to his poor eyesight, he failed the military medical exam because, of course, we were talking World War Two. And uh, he went, he, he, he ended up, he qualified and he worked in libraries. 
his entire life in various places in the UK and he worked in Queen's College in Belfast for I think about five years as a librarian. He returned then to Hull in England and that's where in the library and he worked there for the remainder of his life. So he died, he was he was only 63 when he died but um, you know he was, but there's, there's a couple of short poems there that I'd like to get in as well because in a way I find it fascinating the way he deals with things. Now this one, this one could be yeah. said to be gloomy, but it's also reality. I think I'm backing him up here. <laughs> and this one is called Days. What are days for? Days are where we live. They come, they wake us, time and time over. They are to be happy in. Where can we live but days? Uh, solving that question brings the priest and the doctor in their long coats running over the fields. Now that's, he's, he had this kind of um, an attitude that he was always expecting the end or, you know what I mean, he always brought the end in or the further step. So I think that that, that explains itself. I mean, we do live in days and there is an end to all our days and, you know, maybe people would find that gloomy and if you were to dwell on it, it might be. But anyway, I won't dwell on it. I'll just throw it out there <laughs> for what it is. <laughs> Yeah, but, but he, it kind of sweeps the legs off and we undo it. Yeah, end, though, yeah, it? it's kind of like if you think, yeah, yeah, don't forget that this comes to everyone. But and there's another little short one, and again because I'll read them back to back, and this one is called the moor. The moor stalled twice, kneeling. I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades, killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before, and even fed it once. Now I maul its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning I got up and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. I think he's got a huge amount into that sharp little poem. You know, it's it's sad and it's kind of, you kind of feel yourself going, oh, but yet, you know, it's reality too, you know. So he deals with things in his in in that way. Mm. But I think there's a little a little gossipy bit now that I'd like to throw in. Should we all love a bit of gossip? <laughs> <laughs> so this thing about him shying away and being antisocial, it didn't extend to the ladies, right? So. <laughs> And he didn't seem to be too shy around them. In fact, Joe, what I've learned is that he was known to have affairs. And some of those affairs were with wives of his friends. Wasn't he some friend? He was some and, friend, yeah. And at one time, he was romantically involved with three ladies at the one time. So Gee. there was no shyness there. And I, I'd say that's a different kind of poetry, and I'm not going to expand on it. <laughs> but <laughs> like I say, uh, we all love a bit of gossip. And that, that is factual because like, I've checked it out. And maybe he got inspiration from there. I won't say no more now, <laughs> because you might so tell him. He, he, he was shy in the right way, as they might say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think. I don't think. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'll add to that anyway. So, would you can if you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> you bring us all kinds here on the speaking of poetry, Bernadette. Don't you? Well, what's that they say? It takes all kinds to make a world. Sure, like exactly. you know, it would never do if we were all the same. I suppose. 
Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. that's my story. But, but he obviously wasn't throwing in his kind of, um, I suppose, downhearted line to them at the end like he is in his portrait. I reckon that, that he had something else going on there anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> so that was Philip. He died in a kind of a very young 1985 man, he? Yeah. he passed away and he was only 63. Yeah. And he also, he's, um, in his middle years, he started like he was afflicted with deafness. And his poor eyesight was there from he was a child. And he died then, I think it was uh, cancer of the throat when he was only 63. And, you know, in, in his lifetime, he published four volumes of poetry. Now, you know, slim volumes of that, but he did other things as well, John. It's only fair if I say them. He published two novels and he, was, he also worked as a critic. He wrote essays and he did reviews of jazz music, which was one of his loves for the Telegraph newspaper. And he also edited the Oxford Book of English Verse. And he really was, like, well thought of. He was one of post-war England's most famous poets. And he was commonly referred to as England's other poet laureate until his death. And that, as I say, was in 1985. And funnily enough, when the position of laureate became vacant, and that was in 1984, I think it was John Betjeman that was the laureate then. But many poets and critics favoured Larkin's appointment, but Larkin preferred to avoid the limelight. So he had a lot of people, because I think it was um, an appointment from the monarchy. You know, I, I don't think it was, it was I think it was uh, something you were appointed to, and he had a lot of people, but he just shied away from it. So, you know, he was shy in certain areas. <laughs> but not, but not in others. <laughs> so so he, got, he got his share of awards, um, and he also worked, I should add, with the BBC because he loved music and um, with selecting and, you know, organising various music for various documentaries and things like that. So I just wanted to... But he was awarded the Queen's Silver Medal for poetry and he was awarded... He had several awards, like, I mean, he was very well thought of as a poet, even though he had his share of critics, but sure everyone has. And there are, I should add, several monuments and so on erected and you know to commemorate him and that includes a plaque at Queen's University Belfast so you know he was recognised and you know a lot of people say that he, he did attend to the you know the the metre and rhyme in poetry but some people kind of thought that everything he wrote was very gloom and you could argue that but you could also argue that yeah look this is reality too there's no point in blanking it out just for you know so yeah. anyway as I say look we're only we're only skimming the surface here but yeah, yeah. there is a poem called Toads and it's not really to do with frogs in a sense I should say that because but it's more in my opinion again it's more his reflection on life and I might read that one Joe if, if that's okay do why should I let the toad walk squat on my life can't I use my wit as a pitchfork and drive the brute off Six days of the week, it soils with a sickening poison. Just for paying a few bills, that's out of proportion. Lots of folk live on their wits. Lecturers, lispers, losers, lobby lobby men, louts, they don't end up as paupers. Lots of folk live up lanes with fires in a bucket, eat windfalls and tin sardines. They seem to like it. Their nippers have got bare feet, their unspeakable wives are skinny as whippets, and yet no one actually starves. Ah, were I courageous enough to shout, stuff your pension, but I know all too well that's the stuff that dreams are made on. For something sufficiently toad-like squats in me too. Its hunkers are heavy as hard luck and cold as snow. Do you know, in that poem, I think 
he sees like a life different to his own and I think he's a bit envious that why doesn't he throw caution to the wind and live day to day but he, he doesn't so I think he's thinking you know his pension he has to work he has to attend to his work and give it his full commitment but he's looking then at the other side of life where people just seem to live on chance and I, I get a bit of envy you know but and that's reality there's several different aspects to life and the way they live their life you know so yeah and I'd say anyone listening to this would empathise with that or, you know, have an appreciation Definitely. of that where reality comes in and where responsibility and yeah. maybe when you're younger, you have all these dreams ahead of you yes. and they get tempered as you go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think he, was, he was quite serious about life, I'd say, because you know, he wanted to be librarian and I think he, he adhered to everything like that as if he had to order his life and he had to have that commitment. But... Um, you know, it doesn't stop him from seeing other sides of life and maybe, you know, he wrote about things and he dealt with it in poetry. Yeah, there's something that came into my head there about all these poets that we feature here on Speaking of Poetry is that, like, you can't really make a living as a poet just as a poet. You always have to be a lecturer yeah. or, you know, doing something else like this man working library. You know, it's it's not really a kind of a career as no, such, is it? No, that is a fact. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the likes of, you know, the Brendan Kennellys and the Seamus Heaney's and Ivan Boland's and many, many more... I mean, they all had, as you say, they were lecturers in, in colleges or they worked at other things because the poetry was something, it's almost as if their living was propping up their desire for poetry and, and they created free time. So it's very, very hard if, if poetry is, is, you know, trying to make a living out of that. Just, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Very good. Well, that's Philip Larkin and you have something very special for us <laughs> in the after the break. So we'll go to a break and we'll have more with Bernadette Nereida after these. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. Best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now you're listening to Speaking of Poetry with Bernadette Nereida where we profile a poet here every month and we were already speaking about Philip Larkin and Bernadette you brought a twist to proceedings this morning so what have you lined up for us now? A bit of a twist is right Joe so I'd like to read a poem by a guy called Charles I think I'm probably pronouncing his surname wrong Buosi is how I pronounce it but he was of American German descent and I won't say too much about him because I'm only just reading one of his poems but he was um bit of a hard shot is how people would describe him you know hard drinker lived hard bit of a womanizer all those things but anyway I, he wrote you like, a poem. The, you like having the womanizers on the sport. <laughs> I think do you know we have to expose their little <laughs> their little habits That's a bit of a theme <laughs> so anyway this is called so you want to be a writer if it doesn't come bursting out of you in spite of everything don't do it unless it comes unasked out of your heart and your mind and your mouth and your gut don't do it. If you have to sit for hours staring at your computer screen or hunched over your typewriter searching for words, don't do it. If you're doing it for money or fame, don't do it. If you're doing it because you want women in your bed, don't do it. If you have to sit there and rewrite it again and again, don't do it. If it's hard work, just thinking about doing it, don't do it. If you're trying to write like somebody else, forget about it. If you have to wait for it to roar out of you, then wait patiently. If it does not roar out of you, do something else. If you first have to read it to your wife, your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your parents or to anybody at all, you're not ready. 
Don't be like so many writers. Don't be like so many thousands of people who call themselves writers. Don't be dull and boring and pretentious. Don't be consumed with self-love. The libraries of the world have yawned themselves to sleep over your kind. Don't add to that. Don't do it. Unless it comes out of your soul like a rocket. Unless being still would drive you to madness or suicide or murder. Don't do it. Unless the sun inside you is burning your gut. Don't do it. When it is truly time and if you have been chosen, it will do it by itself and it will keep on doing it until you die or it dies in you. There is no other way and there never was. So that's his take on if you want to be a writer. It's the opposite to the, the Nike slogan of just do it. This <laughs> yeah, so, do it, do it. And then I wrote a poem then called Pick Up the Pen and Write. So I think right. I, I'll go into that. Is this a repast? So is this a repast? It is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Pick up the pen and write. When your arms are full of shopping, and a strong wind whips your scarf, and you look up helpless and watch your scarf behave like a kite, what to do on days like that? Well, pick up the pen and write. When your pet cat gets contrary and sinks his teeth into you with all his might. And you scream with the pain from a feline bite. What to do on days like that? Just pick up the pen and write. When a black cloud takes a scalp out of the sun and the moon doesn't show through the gloom of night. When that happens, you know what to do. Just pick up the pen and write. Sometimes if you're faced with a dilemma and you debate within yourself whether to choose fight or flight, on those days too, you can pick up the pen and write. When you think your whole world's imploding and you feel that those around you don't really give a McGill's edit starts with SH and ends with IT. On days like that, on any day or night, just pick up the pen and write. So I think I'm saying <laughs> I had to skirt around. <laughs> I just skirt around that I, word. I, I like your version, Bernadette. It's a lot more positive. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the opposite to Charles Buozzi. You know, you can write, and he has a different yeah. slant in it, and I respect that. But I'd be saying, whatever happens, you can always pick up a pen and write. And it's strange, yeah. you know. I know a lot of people now that would go straight to the keyboard, but I still go with the biro and the page. 90% of the time and I think I know a lot of writers who would write it out longhand or whatever and be scribbling and then they put it on the keyboard But and I have yeah. skirted around a word that I didn't think you might like and you know that <laughs> you kept thinking. it expletive free here this morning <laughs> very good I'm just thinking now if ever I need to say a word that isn't kind of an, I'll always call it McGill's edit <laughs> <laughs> McGill's edit <laughs> very good it reminds me of someone once said you can't plough a field in your mind so that's very much just get up pick up the pin and do it that's very good it. That's I like it. it well that's a great way to end our slot this morning Bernadette on those motivational uh, <laughs> words a pleasure as always uh, and I like the slant you put on it uh, this morning very very impressive we went from womanizers to expletives and we finished on a positive note so we went on quite a journey Bernadette thanks a million for coming on it's always great having you on the programme thank you too Joe Sloan that's it for this morning's programme my thanks to Abigail Bernard who was on sound Francis is on the way so keep it here on Radio Kerry and I'll be back again next Saturday from 9am until then look after yourself